Hi, everyone. It's Adam White of the American Enterprise Institute. You're about to hear an episode of the Unprecedented podcast that we recorded on April 8th with Supreme Court reporter Amy Howe. She's a co-founder of SCOTUS blog and one of the Supreme Court's best reporters. In this podcast, you'll hear us discuss the state of the Supreme Court during the COVID-19 shutdowns and the steps that the court might take to make the court's work uh, resume more quickly using technology. After we taped that podcast, the Supreme Court issued a press release on April 13th, where they announced that they will hear oral arguments in about a dozen cases by telephone conference in May. I have to admit, I was very surprised by this order. I never expected to see the Supreme Court move to teleconferences, but they're giving it a shot and including some high profile cases, such as the litigation surrounding President Trump's financial records and the investigation of President Trump by the state of New York, um, as well as some other significant cases. It'll be fascinating to see how this actually works in real time and whether the justices and the lawyers are able to actually make this work in a teleconference. The oral arguments will be recorded, but the press release said that the news media will have access to live streams of the audio so that they can cover these cases just like they would if they were sitting in the gallery. That is also fascinating in and of itself because the Supreme Court experimenting in live audio streams is going to significantly increase the calls on the court to do this in its ordinary course of business when it goes back to hearing oral arguments in person. So with that little update out of the way, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Amy Howe. Hello and welcome back to Unprecedential, an AEI podcast on American constitutionalism. This is Adam White. We're recording this on Wednesday, April 8th. We're now several weeks into the national shutdown of sorts in response to the COVID-19 outbreak. Among the many institutions of government that have been affected by this outbreak is the Supreme Court. Supreme Court has postponed oral arguments for March and April, raising questions about when those cases will be argued when other cases will be argued, and questions about when the court will decide the cases that are still outstanding. To explore these questions, we're very pleased to be joined by Amy Howe. Amy is a co-founder of SCOTUS Blog, the single best website source for uh, news regarding the Supreme Court. She founded SCOTUS Blog after many years as an experienced Supreme Court litigator, serving as counsel in over two dozen cases before the Supreme Court, and she argued two of those. She co-taught Supreme Court litigation at Stanford's Law School and at Harvard Law School. She now blogs at How on the Court, and her material is, is regularly republished on SCOTUS blog. Amy, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. It's great to talk to you. And we're joined, as always, by my colleague and our producer, Tal Fortgang. Tal, how are you? I'm doing great. This is a, an excellent time to get in the mind of the Supreme Court and its justices, given that we are all hanging out all day in our chambers and wearing robes. So this is perfect. <laughs> That's good. That's good. <laughs> I've been practicing that one all week. Oh, good. <laughs> Amy, um, so, so Amy, we're counting on you to be nothing less than the oracle and for and, and mind meld of the Supreme Court. So but could you please just give us a sense of, of what the court is doing these days? Just recount the court's status in the middle of this COVID-19 outbreak? 
So the court building is closed. We don't know a lot about exactly what's going on. We know that all of the justices are healthy. They have been holding their regularly scheduled conferences, but they have been doing that remotely to practice good social distancing. And the conferences have been happening as they normally have been on Fridays. We've been getting orders from those conferences the following Mondays. But with the court building closed, everything has gone, as with so many things these days, electronic. And so rather than being at the Supreme Court on Monday mornings to get orders in the public information office at 9.30 a.m., I am sitting at my computer at 9.30 in the morning, hitting refresh and waiting for the order list to show up. And then at 10 a.m., the justices are no longer taking the bench to issue their opinions. They are issuing those remotely as well. The opinions pop up on the court's website. They've had some technical difficulties occasionally. I think perhaps just because the court's website is overloaded, whether or not there are technical issues at the court itself. Again, hitting refresh just like everybody else rather than waiting for the court to announce them. And then the Supreme Court, because of the public health guidelines, which are something that the Supreme Court, I think, is particularly aware of with several justices over the age of 60, with two of the justices who are aged 80 or over, and so in high-risk categories. The Supreme Court is not holding oral arguments. They postponed the March oral argument session, which was scheduled to begin on March 23rd, and then they have announced that the April argument session, which was scheduled to begin in a couple of weeks, has been postponed as well. So they are continuing the work behind the scenes, issuing orders, issuing opinions in the cases that have already been argued, but arguments are off for the foreseeable future. Now, I went back and looked, and it looked like the court was actually on track for a fairly busy year, right? They had granted cert in like over 80 merits cases, if I remember correctly. I mean, it, was, it looked like it had been a pretty busy year up to this point. The arguments they've postponed in March and April, though, that amounts to what? I think there were about 20 cases that were scheduled for argument in the March and April sessions. And then there were still other cases, right, that hadn't been yet scheduled, but would have been scheduled either for, for April or, or maybe the fall. Their docket was full. They had scheduled all of their cases for March and for April, and they were on track to have a big term, both numerically, I think that's right, and then certainly in terms of the number of high-profile cases. And there are still several high-profile cases that are left to be argued, the Trump documents cases, whether or not Congress and New York prosecutors can get access to the president's financial records. That's a case that was scheduled for oral argument on March 31st, a case involving the faithless electors, whether or not the constitutionality of state laws that penalize electoral college delegates who don't vote for the presidential candidate that they promise to support. That was a case scheduled, a pair of cases scheduled for April. There's also the challenge to the Trump administration's expansion of the exemption from the Affordable Care Act's birth control mandate that was also scheduled for April. So some some really high-profile cases that right now are sitting in limbo. Now, other cases that were argued already, but we haven't 
seen decisions from a number of them, including ones we've discussed on this podcast, right? The SELA versus CFPB case, a case involving, was it Louisiana's abortion laws or maybe it was Texas's? Uh, this time, Louisiana. This time, yeah. last <laughs> time was Texas, this time was Louisiana. Last time was Texas, this time was right. Louisiana. There's the New yeah. York Second Amendment case. There is the Puerto Rico Bankruptcy Board case and, and on and on. There was just a lot of it. It was sort of interesting. I think when we started the year, I can't remember if we thought this year was going to be, if we collectively thought this year was going to be an exciting year. It turned out, as so often it does, that just a number of really important cases arose along the way. Oh, and the other ones I'm thinking of are Affordable Care Act risk corridors, whether Congress can be required to pay out where it didn't specifically appropriate the money, or I guess that's begging the question a little bit. But And then the the, the DACA repeal DACA, case. DACA, Title yeah. Seven. We've Title Seven, a, yeah, with uh, gender case. identity and, and sexual identity, sexual orientation. Yeah. I mean, so, Espinosa versus Montana Department of Revenue, the, the school choice right, case. Right. So the Supreme Court, when it issued an announcement postponing the April argument session, it said that it would decide all of the cases argued already. And yeah. some of those cases, you know, they're high profile cases and you would expect the court to be pretty closely divided. There are likely to be multiple opinions on each side. Something that, that is kind of interesting to, for me, I mean, it may well be that sort of the writing expands to fill the vacuum. But you would think at least arguably that if they're not hearing arguments in March and April, maybe they could get some of those cases done a little bit sooner. <laughs> you know, <you'd, laughs> It's easy for me to say. I yeah, you, write them. yeah and, and also anybody knows that when you don't have as many deadlines, it doesn't necessarily mean you do your other work faster. I do know that. <laughs> <laughs> but but so, my so, editor knows that too. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you've answered my, my question then, which is the fact that they're not hearing oral, oral arguments doesn't itself mean that they're going to delay deciding cases. We should just presume that the other cases are more or less on track. Maybe it'll be interesting, not just the time frame for deciding cases, but also, and this is really speculation, but the fact that they're not in the same building seeing each other. I kind of wonder how pointed some of the arguments will get. It's not that the Supreme Court can't be pointed when the justices are face-to-face, but now that they're doing everything on paper, you wonder whether the tone of some of these decisions will be even sharper. I mean, we'll never. it's impossible to know. Yeah, I mean, there is always a sense that by the end of June, that they, it's, it's like for people who've been to law school, it's like by the end of your 1L year, you know, you're just, everybody is so tired of the people in their section, like that they're yeah. just, they're ready for a break and that they're not seeing each other on a, on a day-to-day. But on the other hand, these cases are, are going to be, I think, so hotly debated. And you could really even see it. We haven't talked yet about the, the recent decision in the Wisconsin absentee ballot case. I mean, those dueling opinions were, were pretty sharp. The, oh, there, yeah. was, there was a lot of tone going on there. Oh, yeah. And, and believe me, we're going to get back to that. But real quick, on, on the cases that were scheduled for March and April that are postponed, yes. is there any sense, are they postponed? I mean, say that COVID-19 just seriously goes away in May. Could the court reconvene for oral argument or have they suggested that this is all going to get pushed back into the fall? The wording of the announcement, they were really trying to think, and I think it was probably a good thing, they were trying to leave their options open. So they said, you know, we'll consider rescheduling some cases, some cases. I think they they realized that they can't do them all. Some cases from the March and April sessions before the end of the term, if public health and safety 
permit. And so there's a couple things if you unpack that. I mean, the end of the term, there's nothing that says that they have to issue all of their opinions by the end of June. The end of the term as a purely technical matter is the end of September, the beginning, you know, before the first Monday in October. I think they would probably try to prioritize if they could hold oral arguments the cases that are the most time sensitive, the the Trump documents case, the faithless electors case, because right now that dispute is an abstract one. They don't want to be having that debate and being deciding that to, to be deciding that issue in a case in which it actually matters to the outcome of the presidential election. They have been there and done that. Some of these other cases are cases that they could push back to next term if the opportunity doesn't come along to have the oral arguments, you know, in the next couple of months, you know, the McGirt versus Oklahoma, it's a case about whether or not a particular piece of territory in Oklahoma is Indian territory or so that a crime committed there, the federal government would have jurisdiction over or the state would have jurisdiction over. That is actually a case that they took to replace a case that they, in which they heard oral argument last term, but we presume were deadlocked because Justice Neil Gorsuch was recused. And so I think the idea was that they could take this new case, which came from a state court, Justice Gorsuch would not be recused and they could decide it. So that's a case that, you know, it's an important case, certainly, but perhaps a case that could wait until next term. There's There was a, an original action, Texas versus New Mexico, that has been kicking around for, you know, the, the heart of the dispute for decades that is a case that could perhaps wait until next term. Now, does the court have to hear oral argument in the cases that were postponed or can it decide them just on the papers? That is, of course, that is another, that is another option that they have. They could look at some of them and take another look at some of them and say, you know, given the circumstances, we could go ahead and decide these without oral argument. And that's, you know, the, there was a sentence. They said we could consider a range of scheduling options and other alternatives if oral arguments cannot be held in the courtroom before the end of the term. So they kind of left open the possibility that they could decide some of them on the briefs and then you know, perhaps either hold oral arguments remotely. Who knows? Before uh, Justice, the end of the term. Justice Thomas might might vote in favor of deciding the cases without oral argument. <laughs> given, there are, uh, you know, I took a look at there are not a lot of there are not a lot of easy cases, yeah. but that is certainly an option. You mentioned just in passing at the beginning of the discussion how the court is going about its conferences. That sort of perked my ears up a little bit because some of what the court does is public, much of it isn't. And reporters like you are the ones that try to bring more information to light. How do we know exactly what's going on inside of the court these days? How do we know that the fact that they're they're doing conferences not in person but but rather remotely have they announced that or is that just something that's been reported out that is information from the court's public information office that you know, i as a reporter that they've given to, to the reporters that the justices have been holding their conferences remotely that, that's sort of where I was going with this is, is that the, the, there is this office that interfaces with you where, where you and the other reporters can continue to go for, for public to, to sort of obtain information, right? Is that's an ongoing conversation then between the reporters and, and the court? Exactly. Exactly. One possibility, as you mentioned, is doing oral argument by Zoom or by conference call or something. Needless to say, that would be, it's an understatement to say that would be a break from the court's past practices. And not just in the fact that the, the court hasn't had Zoom at its, at available before. But the Supreme Court tends to be the last adopter of new technology, 
especially not, not just in the judicial system, but even in the judicial system, the lower courts went to electronic filing long before the Supreme Court did. I was still practicing back in those days when I could file briefs electronically in almost any court except for the Supreme Court. And for the Supreme Court, I was still going to Wilson Epps Printing Company to get my hard copies printed. I mean, that would be the only way to file. I guess you'd circulate briefs on email, but the court was always the last. One of J- Chief Justice Roberts's annual letters, one of my favorite ones, was when he talked about pneumatic tubes and how radical it was for the Supreme Court to use pneumatic tubes long after everybody else, as he sort of turned towards the court's own sort of late adoption of electronic filing. Before we get to what the Supreme Court might do in changing its own practices, could you just give us a sense of how the lower courts have adopted to this moment in terms of changing their own processes to allow for the functioning of courts in these extraordinarily socially distant times? Different lower courts, and it's not something that I've been following exhaustively, but different lower courts have adopted in different ways. I know that the Supreme Court of Texas, for example, is holding arguments on Zoom. And I know that the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit, which has long had live audio of its oral arguments, had remote oral arguments by telephone recently in a fairly important healthcare case. And I know that it didn't, based on the news reports, it did not go completely smoothly. I think that there were some technical issues that involved one of the judges getting dropped from the argument for a little while. So there, there's definitely, I think, some some technical issues along the way. But particularly because of the size of their caseloads, I think that they've had to really sort of go move forward as, as best they can. And, and I think that ideally, the Supreme Court would probably like to wait and do some sort of combination of hold in-person oral arguments when it becomes safe to do so, and then push some back to the next term. But at the very least, I think they'd probably like to wait and see how the sort of this experimentation goes in the lower courts. As you say, they're not early adapters and sort of gain from the wisdom of the the courts that have gone before them. One thing that, one problem that I think they might have that that perhaps in the courts of appeals, there are normally only three judges participating at any one time. And so having a phone call with nine Supreme Court justices, you know, most of whom tend to be quite active questioners would would really be a pretty difficult thing to do in most circumstances. I think they would really have to change the format. The Supreme Court has already just this term adopted a slightly different format in which the arguing attorneys are guaranteed a window at the beginning of their oral arguments to, in which they will not be interrupted to state their case, and that the justices would almost certainly have to come up with some system to try and divide up the time so that they, if they justices couldn't see each other, they weren't sort of constantly stepping over each other's questions and interrupting each other and the arguing attorney. I'm not sure exactly how that would work. I mean, and then as far as Zoom you know, you'd have, I guess, the different justices on the screen. And th- there have been questions recently, I think, about the security of Zoom. How would you yeah. keep people from interrupting it? Also, you know, you're just talking about a court that has really firmly resisted not only making 
live audio available, but even making same-day audio available recently in high-profile cases. And I think the justices are really concerned that if you open up that bottle, it's going to be hard to put the genie back in the bottle in terms of going back to a system in which there is no live audio or no live video of oral arguments going forward once the crisis is over. Yeah, I'm trying to imagine the Supreme Court's hot bench minus nonverbal cues. And it's just, you know, imagine the justice, maybe all the justices could learn the hand raising function on Zoom. But even as a law professor, even I haven't really mastered that. Even that is kind of, I mean, kind of interesting to imagine, like some of the, you know, having them all trying to deal with zoom yeah we won't we won't uh, name names but but it's i mean honestly it's 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 i'll say in addition to your own analysis on this i highly encourage our audience to check out two blog posts by your husband tom goldstein scotus blogs other founder co-founder he wrote one in mid-march titled what next for oral arguments and then he, he published another post just a couple of days ago titled courtroom access will COVID 19 lead to streaming oral arguments and so he too has really thought through what this means, especially because it's not just the Supreme Court that has this moment as, an, as a legal educator, right? I, I recognize that this sudden experiment in online education is going to have huge ripple effects going forward. The sudden experiment in companies and institutions like AEI suddenly going all remote is going to have huge ramifications going forward for how we return to our sort of our day-to-day life. And for the Supreme Court too, anything they do here is going to have ripple effects for not just live streaming of of oral arguments, but also the perennial debate over cameras in the courtroom. There's a good reason why the Supreme Court doesn't just allow issues to percolate in the lower courts. It allows technologies to percolate in the lower courts as well. My own guess, surely it's most likely that what the court will end up doing, don't you think, is, is rather than experiment with new technology, they'll wait until there's a little bit more leeway for people to gather together and they'll begin with just oral arguments in extremely limited, with extremely lim- limited in-person attendance, right? The justices, the, the, the arguing attorneys, and virtually nobody else, right? And maybe they could put, right. up, plexi- I, put up plexiglass screens, have the justices somehow sit further apart. I, I guess that's one of the challenges, I suppose, is the justices sitting so close together. But what, what do you think? I was interested. I saw recently in the news that there is some sort of rapid test station set up outside the Oval Office before you can go in to see the president. You are tested and you can get the results back very quickly. So if those sorts of rapid tests become common and accurate, could they do something like that? You know, the justices, some small skeleton clerk staff, small skeleton staff at the court, some members of the press so that the arguments can be covered. And then you release the audio same day, something along those lines. You know, the arguing attorneys, they can sort of guarantee that everyone who enters the courtroom is is as healthy or come as close to guaranteeing as they can if those tests are reasonably widely available by June or something like that. You know, maybe once they establish that all nine of the justices are healthy, they could sequester the nine of them, sort of quarantine them together, which would not just help protect health, but would also be sort of a zany reality show. That would be a zany reality show. It might be some of their worst nightmares. I'm I'm wondering if a moment like this that leads so many institutions to reconsider sort of the way they do business fundamentally, the way they will proceed to do business well into the future. If this moment leaves anyone questioning 
how important oral arguments really are and whether judges and justices in various courts could simply skip the oral argument stage of advocacy and just read the briefs of both sides, read all amicus briefs and provide a more timely answer rather than waiting for the arguments to be articulated out loud. Amy, what do you think? I think it's an interesting question. I guess I feel like at the Supreme Court, and this is, it sort of goes back to the counter argument to the Chief Justice's insistence that he serves as an umpire who calls the balls and strikes. You know, the, the questions that come to the Supreme Court frequently come there because the different courts of appeals have reached different conclusions on these legal questions. And the justices are very cognizant of the idea that they are not just deciding this discrete legal question, but sort of setting a principle that's going to decide future cases that may not be identical to this one. And so that they're interested in, what I'm getting at is that they're interested in the lawyer's perspectives. Maybe they do get some of this from the amicus brief, so I think that's a good point, but that they're interested in the lawyer's perspectives on sort of the, the gray areas and, and how far the rules should extend. And so that's where the oral argument really plays a role. But I do think it will be interesting to see how many of these cases slated for argument in March and April, they do decide to go ahead and, and write the opinions without oral argument. And maybe that'll, that'll give us a better hint. Now, you mentioned a couple cases that weren't yet, that, that were postponed, that weren't yet argued, that have real consequences for the upcoming election year. One is the Faithless Electors case, and the other is the case about the, the president's financial records, the Mazars and, and Deutsche Bank cases. Could you just describe those cases in a little bit more detail about what, what's at issue in each case? Sure. So the financial records cases are actually three cases. Two of them involve efforts by Congress, by different committees in the House of Representatives to get access to the president's financial records through his lenders from Deutsche Bank, from Capital One. And the president is, is through his lawyers, is trying to stop the access, arguing that the request for the documents exceeds the committee's powers because they don't have a, a real legislative purpose. They're not related to actual efforts to pass legislation, that they're really done for law enforcement purposes. And then for the Manhattan prosecutors, a case called Trump versus Vance, the argument, the New York district attorney is trying to get access to the president's financial records as part of a grand jury request for his documents. The faithless electors cases are two different cases, one out of Colorado, one out of Washington state, challenging those states' laws that penalize the electoral college delegates if they promise to vote for a particular presidential candidate, but then turn around and when push comes to shove, try to vote for a different presidential candidate. So in both cases, I believe the Electoral College delegate promised to vote for Hillary Clinton, who in fact won both of those states in the 2016 election. One of them, however, tried to vote for John Kasich, the governor of Ohio. The other one, I think, tried to vote for Colin Powell. And so they 
two different courts reached different conclusions on the constitutionality of these so-called faithless elector laws. And so the Supreme Court agreed to take up the cases. And one of the selling points in urging the Supreme Court to take up the cases was it's much better to go ahead and decide this question now, Mm -hmm. thinking that they were going to be doing it in April, rather than waiting for this to come to the Supreme Court in a case arising out of the 2020 election when it could actually make a difference in the outcome of the election. And so that's sort of the thinking behind the idea that the Supreme Court really would want to go ahead and try, this would be one of the cases people would want to go ahead and try and decide before the end of the term rather than wait for the election to roll around. Now, in addition to those cases, Obviously, they have huge ramifications either directly or indirectly for the next presidential election. There's going to be no shortage of disputes in the courts between now and November or even now and January over the actual process of the election, campaign finance, just the mechanics of voting and so on. And we saw sort of a preview of a sorts this week. Again, we're taping this on on Wednesday, April 8th. We saw a preview of sorts of this in the last few days coming out of Wisconsin, where Wisconsin held elections yesterday, Tuesday, April 7th, elections pertaining to some local offices, I think especially the a seat for the Wisconsin Supreme Court. There was litigation both in the Wisconsin Supreme Court over the Wisconsin governor's executive order trying to delay the election following debates in, in and around the legislature about delaying the election. And then at the same time, there was a Supreme Court order in a case called Republican National Committee versus Democratic National Committee, where, correct me if I'm wrong, but the Supreme Court stayed an injunction, a preliminary injunction by a federal district judge that would have left the polls open a little bit longer, at least in terms of absentee ballots that were postmarked ahead of the election day, or maybe I'm, I'm mixing up the details. But in any event, we saw how the Supreme Court can very quickly be pulled into these election disputes. And I suppose, I mean, I look at the, I have the case up in front of me right now, the court's order in RNC versus DNC, and it just sort of my nightmare that this case this year is going to be a lot of RNC versus DNC and DNC versus RNC litigation that continually draws the Supreme Court into what's inevitably going to be an extremely controversial election cycle. What's your sense of how Chief Justice Roberts and and the justices sort of approach this part of, of American democracy and, and which calls it a particular you know, question, the court's role in the political process. This case in Wisconsin is actually, I think, a pretty good window into how they are likely to approach many of these disputes. There's something called the Purcell Principle, named after a pair of cases in which the Supreme Court has instructed the lower courts that they should not change the rules of the election at the last minute because doing so leads to confusion. And so that is what one of the principles on which the Supreme Court relied in blocking the lower court's order in Wisconsin that would have extended the deadline for absentee ballots. The district court in Wisconsin had said, look, because of the COVID-19 pandemic, there have been an extraordinary number of requests for absentee ballots. And the election officials in Wisconsin are overwhelmed. There's been a huge backlog in fulfilling these requests. And to make sure that everybody who wants an absentee ballot gets one and is able to get it back into election officials, 
we're going to extend the deadline to get your absentee ballots back in to April 13th. As long as it is received by then, then it will be counted. And the Supreme Court said, no, 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 that violates the Purcell principle. You're changing the rules of the election at the last minute. That's, in fact, more than what the plaintiffs in the case had even asked for. They had just wanted to make sure that if they were postmarked by April 7th, that they would be counted. And so I think that that is a principle that we're likely to hear a lot about that tends to sort of favor the status quo, to be sure. And But I think that that is something that we're going to see a lot of. Now, I'd encourage all of our listeners, to the extent you're interested in, in this issue, definitely look up the Purcell case from 2006. What's interesting to me is the way in which sort of both sides of the court in this case, in the RNC versus DNC case, both invoke the Purcell doctrine. You had the majority invoke the Purcell doctrine for the proposition that the district court should not have intervened at this late hour. But then you also saw Justice Ginsburg in her dissent invoke the Purcell doctrine against the Supreme Court's own intervention at this point. She said, in her opinion, this court's intervention is thus ill-advised, especially so at this late hour. Election officials, namely in Wisconsin, have spent the past few days establishing procedures and informing voters in accordance with the district court's deadline for this court to upend the process a day before the April 7 postmark deadline is sure to confound election officials and voters. As soon as the court had issued its opinion, one election law scholar that I follow, Derek Muller, was immediately on Twitter pointing out that, it, that in his opinion, Justice Ginsburg had flipped the Purcell doctrine on its head. Whether that's correct or not, I think it is. But whether it's correct or not, I think it's safe to say that to the extent the Supreme Court finds itself being drawn into election disputes in October and and early November, we're going to see the Purcell doctrine invoked by everybody against everybody else. Because as you're, you're right, the Purcell doctrine sort of preserves the status quo. But of course, anytime a new court or judge intervenes, there's a new status quo. And the question is, at what point should the Supreme Court itself restrain itself? Amy, thank you so much for all of this analysis. Obviously, it's an unprecedented time in the Supreme Court. As you think through what the court's doing now, are there any sort of analogs? Is there any other sort of moment in the court's history we can try to compare this to? Or is this really something new? I mean, I think you'd have to really go pretty far back. You know, the Supreme Court has kept going during the government shutdowns. The Supreme Court, for the most part, keeps going when there are bad snowstorms. It tried to keep going during the anthrax scares in 2001. You really have to go back to the Spanish flu in 1918, when, as far as we can tell, the Supreme Court did have to postpone oral arguments. But it was such a different age technologically that I feel like we really, it really is sort of in uncharted waters in terms of postponing arguments, but being able for the justices to continue to work remotely, have conferences remotely, issue orders remotely, and for the, you know, the press to be able to cover it, it's kind of unprecedented. It's fascinating. Well, these certainly are fascinating times. And so for anybody who wants to keep up with the latest developments, be sure to check out SCOTUS blog where you can read all of Amy's writings. Thank you so much, Amy, for spending time with us today. And thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in. Please join us again next time for the next episode of Unprecedential.